Hello, this is Justin Kalal. Welcome to another episode of Wyoming Law Pod. Today, my guest is Mark Gifford. He's bar counsel for the Wyoming State Bar. He is a Wyoming native who received his bachelor's in accounting from the University of Wyoming in 1978 and his law degree from Stanford University in 1981. After 30 years of practice as a trial lawyer and mediator, Mark took the position of bar counsel on a part-time basis in 2011 and became full-time in October of 2013. In addition to attorney discipline, Mark's responsibilities include the unauthorized practice of law, fee dispute resolution, and the client protection fund. He also serves as general counsel to the Wyoming State Bar. Mark was instrumental in getting Wyoming's Lawyer Assistance Program launched in 2014. He is a member of the ABA Standing Committee on Professional Regulation. He has been recognized as an AV preeminent rated lawyer by Martindale Hubbard. And he's a fantastic guy to talk to you if you have an ethical question. So without further ado, let's get started. Good morning, Mark. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited to speak with you about the Office of Bar Counsel and your job there. Uh, nice to see you, Justin. I thought we could start out by just talking a little bit about how you ended up in Cheyenne. Okay. Well, I'm a Casper kid, uh, graduate of Natrona County High School. I went undergrad to Laramie in law school in California and graduated from law school in 1981 and was hired by a lawyer who turned out to be an important, really important mentor to me, Mike Sullivan. At the time, was a partner at the Casper firm of Brown and Drew. Mike, some of uh, your listeners will know, ran for governor and was elected to two terms of governor in uh, beginning in 1986. So I was learning the litigation uh, trade at Brown and Drew, doing insurance defense work, an interesting litigation case. I did that for about 10 years. And then over the next 20 years, worked with other lawyers, either in partnership or office sharing arrangements in Casper. I took the bar counsel job part-time at the beginning of 2011, so it's been just 10 years ago, and worked as a part-time contract bar counsel for uh, two and a half years before I came to work full-time for the bar in 2013. Kind of an interesting evolution, just like people's lives in general. I never thought that I'd end up being ethics or disciplinary counsel. Tried to stay as far out of rule books as I could generally in my practice. I had kind of a good sense for what was appropriate and what wasn't, but to end up being the rules guru in Wyoming is the last place I thought my practice would ever end up. Having said all that, I've been doing it full-time now for going on eight years. It's a great job. At this point in my career, it's nice to spend all my time just trying to make things better for the for the practice of law in Wyoming and support our members who almost really overwhelmingly want to have good practices, ethical practices, want to do everything they can to be the best lawyers they can be for their clients. And that's the best part of this job is that I get to work day in and day out through the ethics hotline and other resources with lawyers that just want to make sure that they're doing it right or they're looking for a way to do it better. And that's a great thing about the Wyoming Bar. And that's a wonderful thing to hear about the Wyoming Bar. How has the transition to Cheyenne been? Uh, fine. I still have family um, in Casper. My brother and sister are there. I still have friends there, colleagues. Um, so I do get back to Casper pretty regularly just for visits and I still own my office uh, building in Casper. So Casper is still home, but Cheyenne is a great place to live. 
and I have not really had any difficulty with the transition. They're, they're much different communities, but they're both nice places to live. And I enjoy being in Cheyenne. That's good to hear. I grew up here and I always felt like the air base tended to make us more accepting of newcomers because I've had the chance to live a few other places around the state. And it's not always the case where new people are, are welcome. Yeah. And I, I think that's true. And I also think living up the street from Colorado is a big, it, it makes us a little more cosmopolitan in, in Cheyenne and just more, more exposed to more things um, than you might be in some farther reaches of Wyoming. So yeah, I think, and Cheyenne's history is wonderful. I, I never knew anything about frontier days before I moved here, but what a great heritage that is. And really the history of Wyoming is kind of rooted in, you know, the, the transcontinental railroad and the union Pacific line. And so these little railroad towns along I 80 is where a lot of the history of the state is. And it's been fun to kind of learn more about that and appreciate it more. It is interesting. And it's, you know, you drive it and you wonder why there's a town every 40 to 45 miles. And then you realize it's because they needed to get coal back That's in right. the day. So. They needed fuel and water. That's right. Very cool. Well, in my experience, I've seen the same thing with the vast majority of Wyoming lawyers um, wanting to be ethical and wanting to do the right thing. But one thing I was curious about is what are some of the common ethical mistakes that you see lawyers making that they don't realize they're making? That's a really good question. Um, and and these aren't, aren't going to flow in any particular order, but let me kind of address it in terms of what I see as behavior that is most likely to land a lawyer on my desk. And that is the, the, the constellation of lawyer neglect um, situations. And those situations often involve rule 1.1, which is competence. Maybe a lawyer takes on a matter that he or she really isn't competent to do. So it's going to be easy to neglect that, that case. It's the case that you're going to it's going to live on the far corner of your desk that you, you really don't enjoy working on. You don't have the time to put in the effort to educate yourself on what you need to know to handle the case well. So it might start off as a competence problem. If there's a competence problem, oftentimes you're not going to be very diligent about your attention to that case. So that's a rule 1.3 diligence problem. If you're not comfortable with the case because you don't, you don't really have the competence to take it on. And if you're not working the case and being diligent about it, then it's less likely that you're going to be communicating with your client, which is a real one point four problem. So the, the kind of the, the trinity of lawyer neglect rules violations is 1.1 competence, 1.3 diligence and 1.4 communications with, with your client. How that will all manifest in terms of how it gets to my desk is the client will be frustrated with the lawyer. The client feels like he or she is being ignored. Calls aren't being returned. Emails are being ignored. And clients usually really go the extra mile to, to try to avoid bringing their lawyer to my attention. They don't want to do it, but sometimes it's their last resort. And so a good, um, 
subset of the, the population of lawyer complaints that are submitted to my office every year are that that situation where a lawyer is just not working the case, not um, communicating with the client and the client's frustrated. Sometimes, um, not, not rarely, if a lawyer is manifesting that kind of neglect with respect to one client, it's a signal that his or her practice is kind of coming off the rails. If you're, if, if you start neglecting a client or clients, it becomes easier to neglect other clients. And so the, the, the train wreck discipline cases that I've seen, and there haven't been many of them, but there's a lawyer that for whatever reason, whether it's stress, whether it's they don't really enjoy being in practice, there's a lot of reasons that can feed into it. But once a lawyer starts neglecting a client, it can turn into neglect of more than one client, and then it can turn into neglect of the entire practice. And those are the cases, they're, they're fairly rare, but there are cases over the last 10 years that follow a progression of maybe it'll start out with a private reprimand and the lawyer doesn't fix what was wrong in that case and it becomes a public censure and then it can become a suspension. And in an extreme case, you can work through that, that hierarchy right up to a disbarment. And thankfully, we've only had a few of those, but we have had fairly recently a lawyer that went through that hierarchy and it was clear as as we worked through it that he just was not that interested in practicing law anymore he wasn't happy he was dealing with other issues so that's that's one area where you see a fair number of disciplinary situations arise in terms of what's most likely to get lawyers grieved there are two main practice areas there is public defender, criminal stuff. I, I receive more complaints every year than I, than I would like to that are written on line notebook paper and pencil and with return addresses like Rollins and Torrington. Um, and those complaints, although some of them do raise legitimate issues, often they're just, if you've read one, you've read them all. They're complaining about their public defender. They're complaining about the prosecutor, both of whom were in cahoots with the judge. And so it's it's hard to read those with a fresh eye every time. You, you can get a little um, jaded. But in terms of if you're setting out to get grieved a lot, public defender work is one, <laughs> one place that you might want to look. Uh, the other place is um, domestic relations law. Feelings run so high when you're talking about child custody and visitation and those kinds of issues, um, parental rights, um, grandparental rights. Those cases generate high emotions and they tend to generate a disproportionate share of grievances. The good news for both of those kinds of cases, the criminal law work and the domestic relations work, is you will rarely see a disciplinary order come out of those cases. We can usually deal with those through non-disciplinary alternatives or just trying to help the parties get back in some kind of um, workable state where they're not so angry at each other. In terms of sheer numbers, the cases that generate the most serious discipline are the lawyers that just, just are ignoring the rules. We don't see a lot of them, but we see 
cases where conduct adds up collectively to misrepresentations, misrepresentations to the court, misrepresentations to other lawyers. Those are the serious cases. And we, at any given time, have four or five of those going on in the office. And they're, they're a huge resource stream. We see about 150 lawyer complaints in, in the building, and that's year in and year out. That number holds pretty, pretty true. We were really down last year, and I don't understand why. But as a general rule, you can set your clock by 150 complaints a year. And those generate about 15 disciplinary orders. Um, and it's just interesting how that percentage holds true. We don't have a quota system. I don't look at my files and say, ooh, we better get a couple of private reprimands cranked out. It doesn't work that way. I, we try to look at every, every case on its own merits and process it according to the rules. But out of the 15 uh, disciplinary orders you see every year, the greatest single number is going to be private reprimands. And then as you proceed up the the disciplinary hierarchy from private reprimands to public censures to suspensions to disbarments, you see fewer of each case as you go up. So in a given year, we may see six or seven private reprimands. We may see three or four public censures, a couple of suspensions, maybe a disbarment. But that seems to be the distribution of the, um, of the cases that turn into discipline. And in terms of the disciplinary hearings, uh, how many of those would you say are would be characterized by you know a mistake versus you know intentional misrepresentation or some other intentional action where the lawyer knows they're violating the rule and they either just don't care or don't think they'll get caught? You know that's a really good question. The cases that tend to go to hearing are the more serious cases. The cases that don't carry potential penalties like suspension and disbarment. You can usually resolve that on a stipulated basis um, because it's, I mean, no lawyer wants to be disciplined. No lawyer wants public discipline. But if the choice is between agreeing to a public censure and taking your chances and rolling the dice on what may be a suspension, most lawyers are going to say, you know, it doesn't feel good. I understand that I messed up. I'm going to accept whatever it is, a private reprimand or a public censure, and get on with my life. It's the lawyers that are really looking down the barrel of a serious disciplinary outcome where they're going to lose their license for a while or for a long while. Those tend to be the cases that go to hearing. And there aren't very many of those. Those happen uh, maybe a couple of times a year. I think the most hearings we've ever held held in one year was five. Wow. Um, so most cases resolve uh, the ones that turn into discipline situations by, by a stipulation that is approved by the Board of Professional Responsibility, which is the hearing tribunal. And for public discipline, it's forwarded on to the Supreme Court with a recommendation and only the court can issue public discipline in this state. So that's, that's the way that works. Um, Lawyers that just have their backs against the wall that are like, you know, the choice between a two-year suspension and disbarment is kind of a, a meaningless outcome in terms of distinguishing between the two. They're both disastrous to my practice. I don't know if I can come back from them or would want to. 
lawyers do come back from suspensions. A couple lawyers have come back from disbarments, which um, if, if you are disbarred, you are eligible to petition for reinstatement five years after the order. And some, a couple of lawyers have done that successfully. I've seen a couple of uh, lawyers pro hoc in from other states that have done that successfully. And it's pretty amazing the way they have to bear their soul. Uh, oh, boy. To, you know, make a full disclosure to the court. But yeah. they tend to do it. And they for fine attorneys, the ones that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think all of us have read the orders on coming out of the Supreme Court and stuff, and it tends to usually reference either a lawyer being cooperative with bar counsel or not being cooperative. And so my question would be, how can a lawyer facing a serious complaint be cooperative, but not just give up the ghost and say, all right, I'm, I'm guilty? That's a good question. Um, the, the truth is that in order to become licensed to practice law, you, you, you have some modicum of both brains and sense. And so one of the, one of the nice things about practicing in Wyoming and, and me being a part of the legal community here for, um, I'll, I'll, I'll have my 40th anniversary later this year, is that you kind of develop relationships with people where you can just talk. And, and Wyoming lawyers, I think, are more comfortable with just talking and interacting with one another because it is a small state. And we, you know, you may see a lawyer in a case and not see him again for 10 years, but you've still got a relationship there. So to get back to your question, um, I am kind of able, once I get through the initial stage of the investigation where I feel like I've kind of got my arms around the operative facts, and I think this is where I draw a lot on uh, background as a mediator. I mediated for 20 years in private practice where I can just have kind of a heart to heart with the lawyer and say, look, my evidentiary standard to pursue discipline is clear and convincing evidence. And that's a high bar. And although I would, you know, kind of offer some constructive criticism on the way you dealt with this situation, it's not clear and convincing evidence of misconduct. In, in my opinion. On the other hand, this misrepresentation that you made to the court is clear. There isn't any argument about it. It's on the transcript. It was demonstrably untrue. So let's start there. Now, that's kind of an interesting conversation because if the lawyer is willing to say, you know what, I, I didn't think I'd get caught. I have my reasons for doing it, but they, none of them sound very good right now. What can we do to work this out? That's a positive step because from the standpoint of now having looked at, um, gosh, 1,500 complaints over the last 10 years, I've kind of come to understand that the important thing about attorney discipline, the most important thing is to put lawyers back in some kind of a, on a better path. So I'm all in favor of a remedial outcome. It might have some discipline with it. It might have a, um, a public censure or a private reprimand. It might be a diversion, which is a non-disciplinary uh, outcome for minor rules transgressions. And it might even involve some time on the bench, which is what a suspension is. But if we can get the lawyer going back on a better path, that's the best outcome. There are some cases where the, the, the client protection and the duties owed to the legal system are paramount. And in those cases, you're not talking about 
you know, remediation. You're talking about, you know, you really should not be a lawyer, at least for a while. And maybe you just need to spend some time in the corner thinking about what you want to be or reclaiming yourself as a lawyer or whatever that involves. So the cooperation with with my office is really huge because we're not we're not out for somebody's scalp. We're out to administer the disciplinary system the way the court tells us to in the rules of disciplinary procedure. We're there to, you know, remind and nudge lawyers back to ethical best practices, which is what the rules of professional conduct are about. There have been a few cases and they've happened more in the last few years and I cannot put my finger on why. There are cases where the initial complaint that comes to our office turns out not to be appropriate for discipline, but the lawyer's conduct in the investigation and their failure to cooperate um, turns into the discipline. And it's weird for me to see. We had a case a few years ago that started out as a complaint from a client. And it, it looked like it, uh, my first, the th- first thing that jumped out at me is that the client had loaned the lawyer some money. So I thought maybe that was a improper business transaction between lawyer and client. That turned out not to be the focus of the case. The lawyer's conduct in responding to it and phonying up emails and altering bank records and clearly doing that turned into a nine month suspension for that lawyer that then evolved over the course of a short uh, period of time within a couple of years, she was, she was disbarred for not that case, but some other similar conduct. So that's, that's an example of a situation where a lawyer for whatever reason decides not to be cooperative which is of itself a rules violation. Rule 8.1 says you've got to cooperate with bar counsel and you've got to be honest on the admissions process. Those duties live next door to each other. Where that conduct has resulted, has been the cause of a disciplinary order where the original complaint kind of washed out. There wasn't you know, clear and convincing evidence of misconduct as alleged by the complainant. So it, it's interesting and I don't get it, but I also have come to understand that there, there are those lawyers out there that are gonna step into that trap. And, and I see Steve Klein a lot as respondents counsel. I, I, I love to see Steve because he's, he's really a good lawyer. He's done this for a long, long time. And Steve jokes about how in so many cases the cover up is worse than the crime. And that's such a good analogy. It really is. Um, if you are unhappy enough to receive a letter from my office that has a big red confidential stamp on the front, you're not going to want to open it. Um, but I would just encourage you to approach it from the standpoint of, okay, this isn't the end of the world. The, the bar has a job to do here. A concern has been brought to bar counsel's attention. And the best thing I can do is just be candid and forthcoming and cooperative. And the chances for a disciplinary outcome of that are going to be greatly reduced if you adopt that from from the get-go. And so in terms of those conversations with people facing a complaint, um, how many of those are with you directly and how many of those are with the uh, lawyer and their defense counsel? 
For more serious cases, I really like to see lawyers represented. It's easier for me in, in this serious cases to talk to. It's that, that, that adage about a lawyer who represented himself has a fool for a client. You know, for some lawyers that are really in serious trouble, they have a hard time stepping outside of their, their role as a respondent. Um, and acting as a lawyer. They just don't have that objectivity or that distance. Having said that, almost the vast majority of cases that I work through every year, the lawyer is self-represented. We come to a stipulated outcome if it is gonna be discipline. The more serious cases, lawyers tend to hire counsel, and I'm always glad to see that. It makes my job easier, frankly, when they're represented by somebody else. And you mentioned it earlier, but could you go into a few more details on the diversion program and how that operates? You bet. Um, we have a diversion program that under the rules of disciplinary procedure is a non-disciplinary outcome. It is, it's limited in its application to situations where there are minor rules violations that are correctable through remediation. It, any cases that involve repeat bad conduct or more um, uh, conduct that may lead to a suspension, say, those are not eligible for, uh, for diversion. Where we see diversion used most commonly is in situations where a lawyer has developed a, a sub substance abuse or dependence program, and we can get them in uh, treatment recovery, monitor their treatment and recovery, and as long as they're compliant, um, eventually the, the diversion period comes off and they're just back in, in, uh, full practice. Um, so diversion can have kind of a probationary almost aspect to it, except that it's not public. Nobody knows that a, a lawyer is in a diversion program unless they disclose themselves. That's not, not anything we share with anybody. The other situation where we may use diversion is a situation where a lawyer's practice is just kind of on the rocks and they really need some mentoring. They need to get some CLE um, about best practices in terms of office management, uh, law firm practice management. And those are good cases for diversion because there we don't have anything that's come off the rails yet, but it's kind of headed that direction unless um, the lawyer can sit down with some resources that we offer and, and just try to adopt better office practices and, and law firm management practices. So those are, those are fairly common diversion situations. We do a handful of diversions every year. It's not like we do a bunch. Some we don't even have to divert because the lawyer says, you know what, this is a wake up call to me and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And I say, great. If there's anything we can do to support you, here's some member benefits you should be aware of that'll improve your, your practice um, uh, management. And those are happy outcomes where we can just kind of nudge lawyers back into a manageable lane on their practices. Over the years, I've had, you know, the opportunity to see a couple of friends, you know, clearly on the verge of, you know, having a substance abuse problem or just, you know, taking on too many, many cases or something where they were clearly on the edge. And most of them, you know, with the frank conversation or something, or, or they had an event that kind of 
was their aha moment. But if if you see a lawyer kind of going down that path, is it appropriate to, you know, to reach out to the Office of Bar Counsel and just, you know, informally without a complaint, say, you know, I, I'm not sure what to do, but, you know, my friend Bill is clearly on on the path towards towards a problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, we live in a culture where, first of all, the culture of the practice of law hasn't always been very um, conducive to people admitting that they've got issues. I mean, lawyers, we think we can solve all problems, including most importantly, our own. And that just isn't true. Our, we work in a profession that is plagued by depression, anxiety, substance abuse um, at a level that rivals really any other licensed profession. So we're aware of that, but, but we haven't developed very effective means of addressing it. We're trying hard. I mean, nationwide, profession-wide, there's a big wellness um, commitment and effort. And the Wyoming State Bar has really made that a, an important part of everything that we do in the last couple of years. I, I do appreciate getting a heads up from a lawyer that, you know, sometimes I'll see, I'll get rumblings of, I can just tell a lawyer is struggling and their practice isn't going well. I don't have a complaint that I can use as a, a foot in the door to have you know, a more formal conversation with the lawyer. But I do have some resources where if you were to call and say, I'm, 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 I'm concerned about this lawyer that I've known for a long time and I don't think she's doing very well. One thing I might suggest to you is, you know, you should reach out to Jack Spate. Jack Spate is a retired lawyer who runs our lawyer assistance program on a volunteer basis he has for since we launched it in 2014. And he's a great resource, both because he was in practice for almost 50 years. And Jack has a great way about him of just talking to people. And in this position, he's developed some great networks of, we've got a network called Lawyers Helping Lawyers, where we might connect a struggling lawyer with somebody that just cares and maybe has been through the same struggle themselves. And so, I don't get involved with what Jack does, but I do kind of act as an intake person sometimes where I'll, where I'll call Jack and say, hey, Jack, if you hear from so-and-so, I'm aware that they're struggling um, or somebody that's calling about so-and-so, I'm aware that they're struggling and, and that's somebody that's landed on my radar that hopefully you'll either hear from or have an opportunity to help. And Jack says, great, I appreciate that. And that's where that ends. Um, because we do really try to keep a firewall between the disciplinary function, which is what I oversee, and, and Jack, you know, trying to bring resources to lawyers that might help them work through some of those issues. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and I guess, you know, to transition a little bit, but probably along some of those lines, what's your favorite part of the job of Bar Council? The people that I work with in the on the bar staff, it's a small staff. There's six of us um, full-time plus Melinda McCorkle joined us as deputy bar counsel a year ago and it's been a joy to have her as part of this team so I, I just like the bar family I have here we work hard we've all worked here for a number of years and we're a good really good team and I've you know I've been lucky in my practice I had great law partners and and great practice situations but this is just um in a lot of ways, the best job I've ever had. So there's the the aspect of working for an organization where we're just all working together to try to 
make things better. And that at this point in my career is important to me. The other thing that's great about my job is the ethics hotline. That's something that um, the court allowed me to start up when I started full time um, in 2013. Before that, when I came to work for the bar in 2011 part time, John Berman had been the ethics hotline for all practical purposes. Um, just a, a dear professor at the University of the Ethics professor at the College of Law and just a revered figure. I mean, heck, when I was coming up through the practice, if you had a question, you called John Berman when he was a young professor at the law school back in the 80s. And uh, when I started at the bar, he was, uh, Professor Berman was dealing with some health issues and he was starting to kind of phase out of spending so much time helping lawyers through those um, real-time situations. And so that provided kind of a natural entry point for me to do the same thing. When I started, I wasn't competent to do it. I mean, I, I learned these rules. I still learn these rules, even though I live in them um, every day. But when I came to work for the bar in 2013, I proposed to the court that they allow uh, me to take ethics hotline calls because John Berman had pretty much phased out of that um, service. And um, I just thought part of the practice of employing a lawyer full time at the bar, which had not been the case for the 20 years preceding, was a chance to offer a lawyer some resources. My colleagues nationally thought that was a crazy idea. Who is going to call disciplinary counsel to find out if they're doing things right? It's like going to the cops and asking them if you know, something you just did is, is illegal or not. But as it turns out, it's worked out great. The court adopted a rule um, that allows me to do it, to provide informal ethical guidance to lawyers. And as it turns out, there is the danger that somebody will come to me with an ethics hotline query, and that turns into a complaint. And we've, we've provided for that. When that happens, and it does, doesn't happen often, we have a budget to hire outside bar counsel, and we do that a handful of times a year. On the whole, the population of lawyers who are calling me wanting to make sure they're doing things right, and the population of lawyers that get in ethical trouble are two distinct populations. There's not much intersection between those two. And I've taken you know, it depends on the week, but in a in an ordinary week, I'll probably receive a couple dozen, um, four or five a, a day. One day, fairly recently, I had 20 ethics hotline calls in one day, which was maybe an all-time high. But So by any measure, I've taken thousands of ethics hotline calls. And I've they make me better at my job because I have to get into the rules and know how they interact. They made me a complete rules nerd, which I never set out to be and I'm kind of proud of. But um, but through the course of all that, I've developed pretty good, a pretty good sense of why is this lawyer calling me? And if 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 I feel like they're they're just gaming the system, if they're looking for a get out of jail free card. That's a much different and less productive conversation than if, which is the case almost all the time, they're just calling because they want to be sure. They think they know the right thing. They want to make sure they're not overlooking some rules provision. Those are 
those are the really fun calls because I'm able to leave them feeling either better about a course that they were already intending to follow. They just want to make sure they're not overlooking something. Or I've pointed something out to them in a rule where and oftentimes in that situation, the lawyers say, I knew that was in there somewhere. I just didn't know where it was. And so that's the best part of my job. The, the grind of working through 150 complaints a year and having at any given time between 50 and 60 cases under investigation is a grind. And it's just like any, but the grind anybody goes through in the practice of law. There are aspects of this profession that are a grind. That's the grind of my job. Nobody gets up and goes to work in the morning saying, ooh, I wonder what lawyer is going to end up in trouble today because of my efforts. That's, I mean, it's an important part of being a self-policing profession. But if if somebody would say that's fun, then they probably shouldn't have that job. Would you say that that's kind of similar to a civil practitioner having, you know, like 50 open cases at various stages of litigation or? Uh, a little bit. The, the challenge of having a busy litigation practice is so much of that, depending on the nature of your practice, really is, is time intensive in depositions and the time that you put in briefing. Um, I, if I take two depositions a year in this position, that's a lot. I didn't, private practice had kind of burned me out on depositions anyway. I don't think they're that valuable. There's times when you have to take them to avoid a summary judgment or something like that. But I, I took so many depositions in the first 15, 20 years of my practice that I was kind of looking for a way to avoid that grind. That's, that's a tough slog. And you don't have the big briefing pushes in this in this job. I still do a lot of legal research. I, I have to support the, the the course that I choose to take a case with with the law. But it's not the big burning the midnight oil on getting the Supreme Court brief filed. I still file things with the Supreme Court, but that the level of intensity there is not like it was in private practice. In terms of just keeping 50 or 60 cases moving through the process and not getting bogged down. That's, that's a grind that's a little different from at least what I experienced in private practice. So I definitely would like to circle back to the hearing process, but before we get too far away from the bar hotline, I just, as a solo pr practitioner, when I was a solo, I mean, that was just an unbelievable resource and it's still an amazing resource. And I, and I usually find if I'm talking with my law partner is about an ethical question and, and we're like more than two minutes into it. And we don't have a certain answer. Everyone kind of looks at each other and it's like, well, it's time to call Mark, you know, <laughs> but I was wondering if the other states have seen how it's worked in Wyoming and have now kind of changed their mindset on it. Yeah, that's really been exciting to me that um, I go to my my um, my industry group is called the National Organization of Bar Council, and it's a great group. We have two conferences a year that revolve around the ABA conferences. So we just had our, everything's virtually now, of course, but we just had our virtual mid-year conference last week and where we gather and we compare notes, we take CLEs, we, I belong to a chief's group 
where we just have our, our kind of private chiefs retreat and compare notes on things. So it's given me a perspective. I remember when I first started telling my colleagues that the court had authorized an ethics hotline, they all looked at me like I had two heads. They thought that was the worst idea they'd ever heard. Now, states are looking at it. Alaska's gone to that model, the Wyoming model, I'm gonna call it. Uh, I like it. Because I'm proud of it. Nebraska is looking hard at it. Even Illinois is looking hard at it, which would be huge if Illinois starts staffing um, ethics hotline calls. In most jurisdictions, the thing I like about Wyoming is we're we're small and we're pretty nimble. To me, we don't off we don't offer formal ethics advisory opinions. We used to, but we 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 gave that up six or seven years ago because. It's just not an effective way to deal with a real time problem. By the time you work something through an advisory opinion outcome, the crisis is passed. And so the nice thing about the ethics hotline is it's something that we can offer in real time and take it right now, take the call today, talk through it and send the lawyer on, on their way. Um, even in Colorado where they have a, a similar function through the Colorado Bar Association, which in Colorado is a voluntary dues paying group, they have an ethics hotline function. The problem is that you don't get a quick turnaround on a query. And we really, Melinda now and I, we really pride ourselves on not letting a call go unreturned for more than 24 hours. A lot of these calls, they come in in real time. I'm sitting at my desk working. I take the call, talk the lawyer through the situation. That may take 15 minutes. It may take an hour and a half but we're able to work through it in real time. And I, I don't know that there is another place that offers that. So yeah, we're pretty proud of that here. I think it's an amazing resource and very happy that we have it. Getting back to that uh, disciplinary proceeding, can you give us kind of the overview of how the full-blown evidentiary hearing, like the process, the nuts and bolts of how it goes down? You bet. Well, first of all, to put a an investigation on a path towards a hearing, that all begins with the filing of a formal charge, which is like the filing of a complaint in civil litigation. Before I can file a formal charge, I have to uh, get approval from my oversight committee, which is called the Review and Oversight Committee. It's a panel of three lawyers that are appointed by the court to that function. They, that committee is busy. They do all, several different things, but in this context, what they do is they they look at what I've got in terms of the evidence that I've gathered, and they make a thumbs up or thumbs down determination as to whether I've I've gathered sufficient evidence to make a clear and convincing case of misconduct. And so that process requires me to show both the respondent, the lawyer who's under investigation and the Review and Oversight Committee, all of the exculpatory information I have. That's an important part of the due process aspect of that, of, of that function. So by the time I'm ready to present a case in a formal charge, I've already put a lot of work in on it, and I've satisfied myself and this oversight group that there is a case here. There, there is a thing. And so once they approve the filing of a formal charge, I file it and it goes forward. Then you're in kind of a more of a litigation mode. One thing that is fairly new, a year and a half ago, the court adopted 
a rule that opens up our discipline, makes it more transparent. So now from the filing of a formal charge forward, that information is available to the public upon request. We filed a few formal charges, and unless it was already a high-profile case before we filed it, nobody's going to come calling and wanting to, to see our files. If they do, it has to go through a process. It has to be submitted to a bar employee um, who serves as the clerk of the Board of Professional Responsibility. She has to share the query with the chair of the BPR, and they have to agree that you know, this is an appropriate thing we can release, or maybe we need to redact some things in there because there's confidential client information in there. But we do have a more transparent process now, which I think is good. Wyoming was really late in getting to the table on opening up discipline. It was the 44th state, I think, that adopted a rule that says once a formal charge is filed, if not before, it becomes um, public information. Once the formal charge is filed, then we we typically will have a, um, the, the BPR has now been expanded to nine members. There's six lawyer members and three non-lawyer members all appointed by the Supreme Court. That was a recent expansion. And now the way we do it is if a formal charge is filed, the chair of the BPR, who currently is retired District Judge Jeff Donnell, he works with our clerk to assign a hearing panel to that case. The hearing panel is going to be comprised of two lawyers and one non-lawyer. And so that hearing panel's function is to shepherd the case through the formal discipline process. Typically, that starts with a scheduling conference held between the respondent lawyer, his or her counsel, if they have counsel, and me or Melinda from my office will get on the phone with the the chair of this hearing panel. We'll set dates. We'll pick a hearing date and work backwards in terms of deadlines for experts, deadlines for exhibits, discovery cutoff, those kinds of things. The cases tend not to be heavy discovery cases, mainly because by the time I file them, I've got the information. I'm sharing that information with the respondent along the way. So there may be a deposition or two taken in the process of the run-up to a hearing, but that's pretty unusual. The hearing gets held. Uh, now those hearings are going to be open to the public. We've Our first case um, that was supposed to try back in August, but then COVID derailed that. We're, we're now on, on uh, track to, to have an in-person in hearing in this case in, in May of this year. There has been a member of the press following that, that uh, case all along, even before it became a discipline case, and she is going to attend that hearing. Um, that's going to be different for us because these have always been, you know, closed door, um, super confidential settings. Um, lawyers, a lot of lawyers don't like opening things up and making it more transparent. From my standpoint, being in this job for 10 years, that's a lot better because if you're not transparent, then you're either, you know, just part of the good old boy system that's trying to protect other lawyers or, you know, everything's being done on, 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 on the snide and nobody really knows anything other than what's in a published Supreme Court opinion um, with discipline. And so we're still in the 
early stages of working through those growing pains on a more transparent system, but I think it's going to be better. Typically, the, the time that elapses between the final and uh, the filing of a formal charge and an actual hearing is less than six months. Once the hearing is held, the way the hearing is held, it's a bifurcated process. It's a bifurcated hearing, kind of like liability and punitive damages in a, in a, in a civil case. The first part of the hearing is for the purpose of determining whether the lawyer violated rules of professional conduct, and if so, which ones. And I have to prove all of those by clear and convincing evidence. It's not unusual for me to charge more rules violations than the BPR agrees upon. So in any given case, I will be, I'll be pleading all the rules violations that I think are implicated by a particular set of facts, a particular uh, course of conduct. A not unusual outcome of that first phase of an actual disciplinary hearing is that the, the, the hearing panel will say, okay, we find that bar counsel proved the following rules violations by clear and convincing evidence. And they are whatever those rules are. However, with respect to these other alleged rules violations, we find the bar counsel didn't uh, present clear and convincing evidence. And so we're submitting, we're, we're dismissing those allegations. So what uh, happens then at that, the end of that first stage, that first phase, is you go into a sanction phase at which the, the hearing panel will receive evidence that goes to mitigating and aggravating circumstances. They may hear from the respondent. They may hear from the complainant, the victim, if, if you, if you uh, want to put it that way in an appropriate case. They may hear from character witnesses on the lawyer's behalf. They may look at the lawyer's past um, record of discipline. All of these um, can fall into a bucket of either aggravating or mitigating or maybe some things that are neither but, but are relevant to the determination of discipline. What was the lawyer's state of mind? Was this something that they stumbled into or was it intentional? Um, all of those factors come into play in deciding what the appropriate discipline is. They require the application of some ABA um, lawyer sanction standards, which is a, a set of rules that I really live by and try to apply evenly in every case. And out of that second phase comes a recommendation from the, the Board of Professional Responsibility, the hearing panel in this case, to the Wyoming Supreme Court for discipline, if it's, if it's public discipline. I, I don't think we've had one or two cases go to hearing where the outcome was a private reprimand but those are very rare. You, as, as I said earlier, the cases that go to hearing tend to be the more serious cases. Once the BPR submits its report and recommendation to the court, we kind of are in a hold mode. Um, if, if the respondent or my office is unhappy with the BPR's report and recommendation, we can object to it. And then you're in kind of an appeal process with the Supreme Court. 30 days to file your objection, which is kind of like your appellant's brief. And then the other side has 20, day, 20 or 30 days to file a response. And we rarely go that far in these cases. The court may hold oral argument. 
in in a given case. The court hasn't done that in several years. The cases that have gone the path that I'm describing are typically decided by the court on the briefs. But that's the possible range of things that can happen once a formal charge is filed. How confident are you usually when you, because I mean, clear and convincing, that's a huge burden. When you decide to file a formal complaint, how confident are you usually that at least one of the ethics violations will hold up at hearing? Really confident. Um, as a practical matter, the vast majority of disciplinary cases turn on documentary evidence, emails, texts, the electronic record is huge. That's why I preach to lawyers over and over and over again. Be really careful and discreet about what you put out there, because especially now clients are saving everything. They've got all the text messages. They've got all the emails. So many of my cases turn out, arise out of just kind of a, a lousy exchange of emails or texts where the the client's frustrated, the lawyer's getting snarky, and out of that tends to evolve stuff that really looks bad when you reduce it to black and white and put it in front of a hearing panel. Um, so I don't charge cases where it's a he said, she said. I, I just don't think you're gonna make clear and convincing on that. You need more, and what the more that you usually have is electronic evidence, emails or texts or things that are reduced to kind of shifting gears. Uh, I've unfortunately had this experience a couple of times in my career, but uh, fortunately it's been a while since it happened. But how often do you see lawyers using frivolous and or non-frivolous bar complaints to try and get an advantage in pending litigation? Not very often. And we kind of had some, have some guardrails built into that in the process as a general rule. We, we will not investigate a complaint while there's underlying litigation. And we, we just write back to the complainant. We always provide the, the lawyer with a copy of the complaint, but we always, almost always say, look, we don't investigate complaints while there's underlying litigation going on. When the litigation resolves, get back to us and let us know if you still want to pursue this and we'll take a look at it at that point. And you can imagine there's good reasons for that. We don't want the discipline system to be used for one-upsmanship or, or anything like that. Um, the, the rare situation where that's not true is where it's clear to us that somebody is being hurt by this conduct. Then we'll, we will get on it. We may even file a petition with the Supreme Court for the lawyer's immediate suspension. Those, those, have, those are rare. Um, but in, in the rare case, we will get involved in the middle of something that's being litigated, but that happens rarely. But so if you do see something that is clearly wrong, you shouldn't hesitate uh, just because there is pending litigation to go ahead and you know file a complaint if it's legitimate. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, a good number of the calls I get from lawyers who are frustrated with, um, with what's going on in a case They'll start out saying, I just want to know if I have an obligation to report this formally, this conduct. And what I've come to learn about calls that start out that way is sometimes that's really what the lawyer wants to know. Oftentimes the lawyer just wants to vent and say to me, can you believe this? Can you believe what this lawyer is, is doing? The way those calls conclude is I, I say this, the rule requires you to report. 
and we're talking about Rule 8.3 of the Rules of Professional Conduct, you have a responsibility when you see substantial evidence of a lawyer's um, dishonesty, uh, conduct that exhibits uh, causing to question the lawyer's trustworthiness. I'm struggling for the, the language of the rule. Honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer in other respects, you have an obligation to report that to the relevant authority. And so when I talk callers through that and we get to that or conduct um, that reflects on causing the question to lawyers fitness to practice in other respects, they always say, what's that mean? And I say, well, the nice thing about being a lawyer is you have to exercise professional judgment and you have to decide for yourself. If you choose to report this to me right now, you're probably gonna receive a letter back that says, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're not going to investigate it while the underlying case is, in, is being litigated. Get back to us when it's resolved and we'll take a look at it. Um, and so oftentimes callers will say, well, should I, should I just wait till the case is over then? I say, well, that's up to you. Um, probably better for our purposes if you do. And oftentimes lawyers will. And then oftentimes the case will resolve and the, the hard feelings kind of dissipate and I never hear from, from the lawyer again. Uh, but sometimes lawyers do, after a case is over, report it or even report it while the case is going on. Um, but we, we're not really in a position to offer any quick solutions or, or quick um action on those well that is great to know and we're just right at about an hour so uh we really really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and it's it's been educational and lots of fun well it's my pleasure justin and let's get together again absolutely thank All you right. thanks so much thank you for listening to wyoming law pod i'm your host justin Kalau. please remember to rate and subscribe for more cle content also feel free to reach out to me directly if you've got an idea for a show or if you'd like to be a guest. Till next time.